The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, tech stocks in focus again because of Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking ahead to Rishi Sunak's first White House visit as Prime Minister. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. CapEx is jumping in Japan. The tourists are coming in. But all is not well. I'm Kaylee Lyons in Washington, where we're gearing up for two new entrants in the race for the Republican nomination in 2024. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with Apple's upcoming Worldwide Developers Conference at its Cupertino, California headquarters. And this one could be a very important one for Apple executives and Apple investors. And joining me to talk about why is Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, our reporter on all things Apple. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is certainly probably going to be Apple's biggest launch event in the last decade, certainly since the Apple Watch was announced in 2014. This is their annual developer conference, typically software-focused. This time, first major new product in a decade, major software updates across the board, as well as new Macs. Well, it's a laundry list of new things, but let's start with what I think will garner the biggest headlines, that mixed reality headset the first major new product category since the watch, right? Almost a decade. Right. That's certainly going to be the entree, so to speak, of the, the launch and the focus of Apple for the foreseeable future. Uh, this is Apple trying to create an XR or a mixed reality market. The device is going to be the most premium, high-end, and powerful uh, headset on the market. It's going to cost roughly $3,000. Apple's not going to be profiting off this thing. Uh, that's how expensive the technologies that go into it are. It's going to use metal, carbon fiber, and glass you're going to be able to do everything you would do in a Mac, but in a virtual 3D space. You're going to be able to just move in between a virtual reality world and an augmented reality world, which means at one point you could be fully enclosed. You see nothing but the content in front of you. At other points, you'll flick a dial on the top right of the headset, similar to the dial on the side of the Apple Watch. It'll turn on these powerful cameras. There's about a dozen of them outside. And you'll essentially see what's in front of you, just like you're wearing normal glasses or wearing nothing on your face. You'll be able to do productivity, messaging, gaming, a virtual reality version of FaceTime. So it's going to be pretty wide-ranging, and this is Apple's big entry into the space. Now, a, a sidebar before we continue on April is, is just this past week, Meta announcing a $500 mixed reality headset. So trying to uh, take some thunder away from Apple, do you think? Certainly. I've used the Quest 3, and at $500, it's going to be about a fifth of the price of Apple's product. 
But I think it's more than a fit as good. I think it's quite impressive. The video pass-through mode they're going to be using on this device, it's not going to be as good as Apple's, but it's much better than the existing Meta headset, the Quest 2 on the market that launched a couple of years ago. So I certainly think what you're seeing here is a potential rematch between Apple and another player instead of Google, this time it's Meta, uh, in terms of Apple wanting to own the high end of the market and Meta owning the low end of the market, just like Apple owns the high end of the phone market and Google owns the low end, Apple owns the high end of the XR market, Meta will own the low end. And so Meta's really replaced Google as the uh, one at the frontier here. Yeah, when worlds collide. Well, let's go back to some of the other uh, exciting new products and updates that Apple, what we think Apple's going to have. And let's start with the new XROS operating system. So that XROS operating system is a version of iOS that is going to run on this mixed reality headset. So they've created a whole new operating system. They're pushing for an all new app store and an app ecosystem to run on this headset. And continuing on operating systems, there's a new iOS 17, an iPad OS 17, and a Mac OS 14. So Mac OS 14, that's going to be the new software update that runs on the Mac, right? Not expecting major changes there. iPad OS 17, you'll see some minor improvements to multitasking. Uh, you'll also see the health app on the iPad for the first time. iOS 17, you'll see a new journaling app, so you can journal uh, different locations you're at or different activities you're doing and share it with friends. There will be updates to the wallet app on the uh, device as well and a new smart home feature that can turn the iPhone, if you rotate it and put it in lock mode, uh, into a smart home display, so to speak. So quite a few little enhancements across the board on the iPhone and the iPad and the Mac as well. Uh, and then you'll also see watchOS 10. That's going to be a pretty big update to the Apple Watch software. We'll bring widgets to the forefront of the operating system. I think that will be pretty interesting to consumers as well. And as for hardware, not just the mixed reality headset, but also new MacBooks? There's going to be multiple new Macs. I'm expecting a new version of the MacBook Air, a 15-inch MacBook Air with an M2 chip. So it'll operate similarly and look the same uh, as the 13-inch Air introduced last year at WWDC. But obviously, it'll be bigger with that bigger 15-inch panel. That's something that people have been clamoring for uh, for over a decade. And so Apple's going to be delivering there. You'll also see the company's first M2 Ultra chip. That's an extremely high-end chip with up to 76 graphics scores, essentially 10x what you're getting on uh, a low-end Mac, right? A low-end MacBook Air, and that machine will be its highest-performing chip uh, for machines like the Mac Studio and potentially the Mac Pro. So, really, something for everyone across the board at this launch. Wow. Wow. Now, and and preceding this week's upcoming uh, conference. Last week, Apple announced plans for its retail stores and, and a, a big expansion. Why don't you tell us more about that? Yes, yeah, so um, Apple actually didn't announce these stores. We're reporting on these stores uh, based on my inside sources. Uh, Apple is proposing or working on or developing over 50 new stores for opening across the next four years, including new stores in China, India, stores in Detroit, in Miami, a new store in Southern California and Orange County, uh, an upgrade to its opera store in Paris. That's a very famous shopping district. Uh, new stores uh, in Canada, across Europe, a new store in Abu Dhabi, a relocated store in Perth, Australia. So really an across-the-board expansion on the retail segment. Got it. Got it. Wow. Now let's talk a little bit. Let's shift gears, talk about artificial intelligence. ChatGPT, the latest technological tool for so many companies, so many consumers. 
AI getting Wall Street excited too. And Apple CEO Tim Cook says it has its risks, but Apple is all in on artificial intelligence. Let's give a listen. I do think it's very important to be deliberate and thoughtful in how you approach uh, these things. And there's a number of issues that need to be sorted as, as is being talked about in a number of different places. But the potential is certainly very interesting. And uh, we've obviously made enormous progress integrating AI and machine learning throughout our ecosystem. And we've weaved it into products and features for many years. Well, based on what we heard Tim Cook say last week, how does AI fit into Apple's future, Mark? You know, I think AI or applied AI, as they call it, is very key to the company's future. I think this is certainly something that they're trying to implement across their product lines, from taking a picture to using hand wash detection on the watch to using some of the health features on the iPhone and the iPad, right? But I don't think that we're to expect a major chat GPT-like product from Apple or an overhaul of Siri this year. I think that's something that's probably going to come next year or the year after at the earliest. Now, of all the things we talked about today that uh, we're looking forward to this coming week, let's talk about Apple's big moneymaker, the iPhone. And what does all this mean for the iPhone? Is it, in, you know, is it, is it moving it forward? Are we expecting more from the iPhone this year or soon? So there'll be a pretty big iPhone hardware update in the fall. That's the iPhone 15 line. One big change there on the Pro models, they're going to be moving from a uh, stainless steel and glass frame to more of a titanium frame, which I think is going to be quite interesting, make the phone a little bit more durable, potentially make it lighter as well. And so I think that new design is something people are going to be looking forward to. On the highest end model with the biggest screen, you're going to have what is known as a periscope camera. What that is going to do is allow the camera to have a wider range of zoom but optical zoom, which means that the camera itself, the scope, is actually longer and twisted in the frame. And that actually can get a much more detailed picture than the digital zoom that the iPhone and other phones today really rely on for that wide range of zoom. So big changes there. And then on the lower end iPhones, they're going to add the dynamic island, which is that new pill shape at the top where you can control some of your alerts, notifications, and your music and maps on the high end iPhones today. That'll be coming down the line as well as some of the camera upgrades that you saw on the high end iPhones last year coming down the range as well. And also on the high end phones, you'll see um, a faster processor. That'll be like the A17 processor whereas the lower-end iPhones will get last year's Pro processor. So that's going to be a year-over-year upgrade as well. Well, there is a lot to look forward to this week and in the near future. And thank you, Mark. That was Bloomberg's Apple reporter, Mark Gurman. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's big visit to the U.S. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, a growing number of Republicans challenging former President Trump's re-election efforts. But first, the British Prime Minister gets his first White House meeting with President Biden in the coming week. And for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. Tom, Rishi Sunak will travel to Washington for talks aimed at enhancing cooperation and coordination between the UK and US on the economic challenges that will define our future, so we're told. And Bloomberg's UK government editor, Alex Morales, will be on the plane with the PM. He joins me now. So Sunak's visit to the States, I mean, it's not going to deliver this long-touted, hoped-for, but unlikely trade deal between the UK and US. Um, Well, in a short answer, no. Um, I mean, first of all, it's important to say it's his first visit to the White House as prime minister. I mean, he's met Joe Biden a number of times already. Um, I think first time was back in Bali at the G20. Um, But he also met um, in San Diego um, earlier in this year for the big AUKUS deal. Um, And then more recently in Northern Ireland. Um, And I guess they would have also spoken at Hiroshima, but there was no... um, official bilat that's that mm. was the g7 meeting um in may um but yes he's 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 visiting to the white house um what, number 10 have been pretty clear they're not going to bring up the topic of a of, of a uh, trade deal um and that's largely because the biden administration has made, made it pretty clear that it's not a priority for them no, indeed. I mean, the UK has um, tried to secure these deals with individual states, which have, um, you know, sort of tried to ramp up ties between the UK and the US on on that basis. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that this will be the first White House visit? And and you mentioned Northern Ireland. I mean, that was the last time that we saw, um, you know, President Biden. Uh, here he was in Northern Ireland and uh, in the Republic of Ireland. Is there still friction? Do you think on, on that issue? Well, the, the White House pushed back against the notion that Biden doesn't really like Britain. Um, but but what was fairly clear from his visit is that when it comes to there's a lot of warmth um, towards Ireland and much less warmth um, towards the United Kingdom from the president, um, and, and that even became clearer when he returned um, and he, he gave a briefing and, and it, it sort of surfaced in the transcript. He'd said he'd had to come over here to make sure the Brits didn't screw around in Northern Ireland. So clearly, you know, he likes to big up his Irish heritage and he tried to flick 
a, a bit of his British heritage when he was in Northern Ireland. Um, he had some English heritage as well that he he sort of emphasised, and that was sort of a bone um, to 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 the Brits who think that that maybe he doesn't quite like us very much. Um, but yeah, there, there seems to be a little bit of friction. Okay, so that a kind of point perhaps still of some contention how does the uk then respond to the inflation reduction act do you think that that is something that is going to come up in these talks that are going to be about kind of economics and about policy and about um you know the relationship between the us and the uk the inflation reduction act is simply huge in terms of the subsidies that gives businesses to move you know towards that energy and, and green transition what do you think sunak's message is going to be on that well i'm sure sunak what wants to make sure that i mean as you said it's a huge package it's what 369 billion dollars of um subsidies and tax breaks and and just to sort of wind back the big concern amongst british companies is that um, it's it's just going to attract investment to the United States that would otherwise have gone to Britain. Um, so, you know, there's been some concern amongst ministers. Um, when he was business secretary back in January, Grant Shapps called it dangerous. Um, and, and Jeremy Hunt has said that, well, he doesn't, who's the chancellor, obviously, um, has said that, well, he doesn't want to, a subsidy race, he, he sort of hinted in recent weeks that the UK is actually looking at some sort of subsidy response. Um, he, I think his exact words were subsidies have a role um, and that Britain will make sure that we remain competitive. Um, and he's promised a UK response to both the US measures and let's not forget that the EU launched a package of measures sort of to counter mm. the US effect. Um, he, he's promised um, a response by the fall. Um, because obviously the danger is that the UK ends up getting squeezed between these two big powers and losing out on investment in both directions. Yeah. On the foreign policy points then, um, Ukraine, Russia, China, I and mean, the UK has been close to the US in the support for Ukraine in terms of, you know, um, giving weapons to Vladimir Zelensky. How um, do you think that the discussions will be handled in terms of you know, moving forwards when it comes to the war in Europe, but also uh, the US's, you know, rhetoric, increasingly tough rhetoric and actions against China. Well, uh, on Ukraine, I mean, it's almost arguable that the, the UK has been ahead of the US. Um, we were the first country mm. to provide main battle tanks um, to Ukraine. Um, and I think we're, we're now the country that's provided the longest range missiles um, to to the US, but I, th I think largely the two countries are in lockstep on that, and certainly Biden's been very supportive um, of Ukraine in a way that perhaps his Republican predecessor might not have been. Um, and on China, again, I think I think there's a sort of similarity in the language. Both both countries are, are wary that China is a very important economic actor and that they need to maintain an, an economic relationship with China, but the they're also wary of China's growing sort of uh, nationalism um, and the danger it poses in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and, and perhaps the, the visit that Sunak made to the US um, earlier this year to San Diego, um, where the US, the UK and Australia um, sort of fleshed out the details behind their AUKUS packs. That's that's an indication of how seriously they shaped the China threat. Um, it's sort of a big multi-billion dollar plan for a new fleet of nuclear-powered submarines um, to 
to patrol that that region. Yeah, absolutely. And the White House has pointed to this as as an area for discussion, you know, reviewing a range of global issues is how they put it. Um, I wonder whether there are areas for um, photo ops, but also slip ups. That's always, always something that we are kind of keenly aware of. I mean, it is a big big moment isn't it he's going to arrive on the 7th of june then he'll be in the white house the following day and then he's meant to also be meeting congressional leaders you're going to be on the plane with him do you think there'll be a chance to ask him some questions um to or pose some questions to rishi sunak are there any kind of uh, he's under pressure politically at home surely isn't he on on quite a number of fronts uh, yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, what we don't know is if there's going to be a press conference yet. But but on the plane, the prime minister will normally come back um, and and speak in what's called a huddle. I think the photos are now legendary. Um, so, he, you know, each reporter will get probably one question to the prime minister. Um, and then, um, you know, we'll ask him about a range of issues and it won't just be about the US visit. So I guess there's the chance that he says something on the plane referring to issue, domestic issues that, that you know that that are um that are preoccupying the british media at the moment um in terms of in terms of potential for embarrassment i mean rishi sunak's a pretty assured operator mm. um it, it's it would be unusual for him to misspeak um but you know on on, on any international trip there's the potential for something to go wrong <laughs> Yeah, uh, or, or something to pique our interest. I know you'll be there with your question for the PM. Uh, and uh, Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's UK government editor, Alex Morales, of course, who will be in Washington, D.C. and following uh, the movements of the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on his visit uh, stateside. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6 a.m. in London. That's 1 a.m. on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. That was Bloomberg Daybreak Europe host, Caroline Hepke. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we talk about Japan's economic recovery and preview this week's GDP report. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. 
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. And this week we get some important economic data coming out of Japan, including the latest GDP report. For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis. Tom, we look at some of the cross currents in the Japanese economy as we look forward to the next reading on GDP. Good time to talk about the Japanese economy. Now, Japan's businesses increased spending for the fourth straight quarter. That was a sign of the country's recovery from the pandemic. However, a surprise drop in industrial production does suggest a weak start to the second quarter. And it raises the risk that the bounce in GDP that we saw in the first quarter could lose some vigor in the second quarter. Paul Jackson, Bloomberg's Japan, Korea Economy and Government Editor for Asia, joins us. So, Paul, we note that the CapEx number was pretty strong, up 11% year on year, but the factory output number disappointing. What are we expecting for this next reading on GDP in the coming week? First of all, we've uh, the, the reading on first quarter GDP uh, should still be a positive, I think. Uh, we should see signs that uh, there is this moderate recovery uh, coming through, uh, helped and driven by this influx of uh, foreign tourists coming in and continued consumer spending after lifting, lifting of more pandemic uh, measures. And this CapEx figure shows that companies... Uh, are still uh, optimistic and, and buoyant that the recovery will continue for now. And of course, they need to invest in uh, more equipment because they've got this labor shortage within the country. And now with all these people you know, flooding back to visit Japan, uh, especially in the service sector, uh, they need to ramp up investment so they can deal uh, with uh, more people. So I think that when we get the revised GDP figures through uh, next week, they should still uh, be positive and uh, pointing to the moderate recovery. Now, where we go from here, uh, as you've noticed, uh, you know, those production figures for the start of the second quarter were uh, disappointing. Uh, we do have some dark clouds uh, on the horizon. And another thing to look at is those uh, poor figures that came out of China uh, yesterday, showing that the recovery there isn't panning out in the way uh, people had hoped. Uh, so there are dark clouds, but it's still a pretty good environment for Prime Minister Fumio Kishida uh, to even consider an early election. Yeah, I was curious about to what degree Japan could be benefiting from some of the weakness that we've seen in China. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, a weak China is not good for Japanese exports to the country. However, in terms of attracting investment, and travelers, and you already mentioned that inbound tourism is doing pretty well. In a sense, is Japan benefiting from uh, some of China's troubles? I think on the whole, if you look at it net, I think it's, uh, it, it is a minus uh, because like uh, most of the world, we're very dependent on China 
uh, as, as a market and as a, as a producer. Uh, in terms of the uh, inbound, actually, the, the, the biggest spenders in Japan are from China. <laughs> so some economists are saying, hey, look, uh, you know, uh, the moment we've got a, a great boost to Japan's economy from uh, the inbound spending, and we still don't have the Chinese tourists coming back yet, uh, they will uh, eventually start coming, and that will be another driver for Japan. So in that sense, some of the positives uh, uh, from China's situation have, have yet to uh, feed in. So China's a big challenge, and you mentioned that there are plenty of challenges. What else? Inflation uh, is, by international standards, not that high, just above 3% here in, uh, in Japan. But that's uh, kind of historically high for Japan, the poster boy of deflation and falling prices. Uh, so, you know, at some point, economists are expecting uh, the kind of post-pandemic spending splurge to then segue into, wait a minute, you know, real wages are falling, prices are going up, uh, we've actually got less spending power, and that, uh, you know, uh, spending, consumer spending in real terms might start to fall and then weigh on the economy. That's obviously a, a concern uh, for both the Prime Minister and for uh, the Bank of Japan. Bank of Japan uh, has been trying to uh, generate stable inflation for more than a decade. Uh, you would think they've achieved the mission uh, over 3%, right? Because their target's 2%. But uh, they're still sticking to this view that what we've got here is a cost push, um, kind of transitory uh, inflation phenomenon. The, the rest of the world thinks otherwise. Uh, yeah. But uh, in, in Japan, they're looking for more sign of stronger wage growth that could support some kind of demand-driven inflation over a longer period of time. And that has been the long-term goal of Japanese policymakers. And the weak yen is a double-edged sword. It's good for Japanese businesses, and I'm sure they're quite comfortable with um, the yen at 139.140. However, it does make imports and prices for the average Japanese consumer um, very difficult. Um, how does that weigh up when you talk to people in Japan? Uh, well, I think uh, if you go back to last year when we had the very quick slide in the yen down to uh, as low as 152 against the uh, dollar, I think there was kind of sense of panic and uh, combined with the sudden surge in uh, prices and import prices, uh, there was a, a lot of concern. And obviously for those uh, you know, globally orientated companies or the exporters, uh, this is great. This is uh, a kind of instant profit margin boost uh, if the currency is uh, weak. Uh, so at the moment, uh, where the currency is, uh, those global companies and outward-facing companies uh, are in a good position. Uh, the domestic companies, especially those that import materials and produce uh, for a domestic market, uh, it's more of a squeeze uh, for them. But uh, hey, look at the stock market. We are at uh, the highs, highest levels since, the, uh, since 1990. And uh, that suggests uh, that uh, company profits uh, are benefiting. I'm curious about the third arrow of Abenomics, uh, reform. I, and I want to know, you know, across the economy, uh, women in more powerful positions and, and playing a bigger role in the economy and so many of the aspects of reform, uh, corporate reform, how much progress has been made? 
Well, I think uh, this is kind of one of the um, unfinished uh, unfinished targets of uh, of, of Abenomics, uh, the growth program uh, that was launched in 2013, so um, a decade ago. Um, uh, we had, uh, you know, flexible uh, fiscal spending, um, uh, aggressive monetary policy, uh, all helped to uh, uh, give a, a new burst of uh, uh, life into Japan's economy for some time. But this third arrow uh, in the quiver of that uh, growth strategy uh, didn't really get uh, a great deal of traction. We have seen some reforms on on corporate governance. We have uh, uh, seen some some progress there. Uh, the thing is, is obviously uh, Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister who stepped down and was then uh, assassinated, uh, is no longer in power and his faction has uh, less sway over uh, what might be the prime minister might be doing under Fumio Kishida? He's been uh, emphasizing the idea of new capitalism. It's kind of like a, a new deal for how we how we run things and uh, what is acceptable for for companies. One of the key things uh, he's been focusing on is the idea that needs to be kind of rethink of the uh, distribution uh, of income. Maybe shareholders should get a little bit uh, less uh, focus uh, after uh, under uh, uh, Abe, Prime Minister Abe, uh, getting a lot of attention. Uh, maybe your average worker should get a bit more in their pay packet. Uh, that's the kind of message uh, that would feed in well mm. to uh, an electorate that is struggling with inflation oh. at the moment. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Paul Jackson, Bloomberg Japan, Korea Economy and Government Editor for Asia. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, more Republicans are challenging former President Trump's re-election dreams. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. 
Some big announcements expected this week in the Republican race to be the party's nominee in 2024. And for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, the Republican primary field is about to get even bigger. Next week, at least two more candidates are set to formally throw their hats in the ring for the 2024 GOP nomination. The first will come on Tuesday, when former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is set to announce at a town hall in New Hampshire. And then just one day after, on Wednesday, the announcement will come from former Vice President Mike Pence, who will do it from Iowa. Joining me now to look ahead to both of these events is Gregory Cordy, who covers U.S. politics for us here at Bloomberg. So, Gregory, if we could just start with Chris Christie, because he goes first. He's tried this before in 2016, and that was unsuccessful, as we know. Why does he think he could beat Trump this time around? Yeah, Chris Christie is the first of Donald Trump's 2016 rivals to re-enter the fray. And he kind of harkens back to a Republican Party that's pre-Trump, uh, a little bit more establishment. Uh, and But the, as you point out, the party has changed quite a bit. It's become Trump's uh, Republican Party. And so uh, that's going to be the challenge for Chris Christie to appeal to those voters uh, as someone who uh, is anti-Trump, he would, would be quick to point out that he's not never Trump. He was on board with Trump in 2016. He dropped out of the yeah. race after New Hampshire, uh, endorsed Trump, was chairman of Trump's transition committee, uh, helped Trump with debates, chaired his opioid commission, and was pretty much on board through almost all the Trump administration until after Trump refused to concede. So Chris Christie's theory of the case is that he's the one guy who can debate Trump. He prepared Trump for debates against Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. He's debated Trump in the 2016 debates. He knows Trump is a debater better than anybody else who will get on that stage mm. when the Republicans have their first debate in August in Milwaukee. And so he's counting on being able to deliver some kind of knockout punch. He says the other uh, opponents in the race, the other challengers to Trump, have been sort of a little bit too delicate in how they deal with Trump. Mm -hmm. He wants to, he says he can uh, engage Trump head on and maybe knock him off his, his perch. But yeah, it's going to be a big challenge because the lead that Trump has right now is just so uh, far ahead of all the competition. It's going to take some doing to get Trump down off that perch. Well, and of course, another person who is going to run against Trump is a man who served him as vice president, Mike Pence. Does that just make him a villain to Trump's base that he has such a tight hold on still? Yeah, that's the problem that a lot of Republicans have is how to go after Trump without alienating Trump's base. And Mike Pence has a particular problem with that since to the the more extreme members of the Trump base, the people who marched on the Capitol on January 6th, they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Mm. And Former President Trump has done very little to disabuse people of the notion that Mike Pence is a traitor to their cause. Uh, so that's a challenge that I think Mike Pence acknowledges, that he's going to have to uh, appeal to that part of the Republican Party on these constitutional principles. He was bound by the Constitution to do what he did in helping to certify uh, Joe Biden's win in the Electoral College. Uh but it, yeah, that's um, that's the 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 challenge that not just Pence and Christie, but 
every Republican has, is how to deal with that Trump problem. It's going to be a long primary season, and we trust you'll have it covered for us. Thank you so much to Gregory Cordy, who covers U.S. politics for us here at Bloomberg. And Tom, I'll send it back to you. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.